Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, with a mission to help provide you with the resources and tools to help make your music making more effective and enjoyable. During COVID-19, Houghton Horns has newly expanded policies that make it easier to purchase and test drive the best equipment during a time when safety and staying home are top priorities. There's a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping and free returns on new instruments and mouthpieces and multiple easy financing options on all inventory. Terms and conditions apply. If you're interested in trying out an amazing instrument in the selection of brass instruments that they have, now is the time. In addition to the musical instruments they provide, Houghton Horns is committed to creating high-quality music education content to help get great playing and pedagogy videos into the hands of those who need it. Check out HoughtonHorns.com and their YouTube channel, Houghton Horns, for more information. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I have with me this scholarship roadmap founder, Trevor Jones. Um, that's how I know him, at least. Uh, he interviewed me a few weeks ago. Um, and I'm really excited about the chance to um, sort of turn the microphone back on him, get to know him a little bit so we can um, get to know a lot of what he believes um, to talk about the scholarship roadmap program that he has and like why it's important and stuff like that. Um, and so first of all, uh, thank you so much, Trevor, for being willing to give me some of your time to chat with you for a little bit. Yeah, so it's great to be here, Ryan. I really, uh, really appreciate your work. Absolutely, this is uh, this is awesome. So, I think we'll just go back to however far back you think is relevant for us to get a sense of how you got into music, how you kind of went through your educational career, and um, yeah, we'll just explore this for a little while. Sure. Well, I grew up in the historic town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, in South Central. PA and my mom and dad were both musicians, are both musicians. And my dad got started, um, he got a music ed degree, but then he went through a bunch of different types of gigs, like taught a little public school, but then he went into, uh, you know, what do you say, like instrument sales. Then he went back to teaching, did a little adjunct work, and then eventually got a full-time position at Gettysburg College, which is, you know, why I ended up growing up there. And he then... Um, you know, got his DMA while he was in school and then had a great career there teaching theory, you know, oral theory, written theory. Uh, he ran the jazz ensemble there and started with marching band. I swear he did like every job at that college at some point. <laughs> and my mom also went to the same college, although not at the same time, uh, Lebanon Valley College. And she, music ed as well, and had an amazing career as a music educator, um, you know, starting with elementary band, high school band. Then she went, started doing general music, got really into ORF, uh, Schulwerk, and did a lot of work, um, uh, essentially classroom music method. And, um, you know, did a lot of work with that and then finished her career in Gettysburg uh, teaching elementary band 
she had a kicking program, really awesome program. So I was really fortunate. And of course, as a kid, you just kind of don't think about that. You're like, I come home every night and there's some great music playing. Like my parents would be playing like Tower of Power, Earth, Wind and Fire, Antonio Carlos, Joe Beam. Um, I mean, the list goes on. And so, you know, I haven't really thought uh, more deeply other than that was, um, you know, being their child was amazing and being around such great music all the time was amazing. And my extended family, like uh, my uncle is, you know, kind of like my best friend. And he, he and I would speak about uh, and still do all the time, like more about pop than anything. So I was getting this just really broad range of music when I was a kid. And I was just like listening to literally everything. And I still do. And it still all gets me really excited. So I, that was kind of, you know, that was kind of it for me when I was a kid as far as my family. But I actually started, I took a couple lessons on cornet and was just, just horrible. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, I was so bad. And before that, I was taking piano lessons. And I can't say I practiced very much, but as, you know, most kids, you know, most adults who took piano lessons would say, I'm really grateful for my parents um, getting me to do that. And then I sang in church choir all through uh, middle school and high school. And, you know, that was, of course, you know, getting to know your voice, especially when it's changing is a you know, super awkward time in your life, but uh, gets you a little co- more comfortable with public performance. Um, and, you know, then I think I did pretty classic, uh, you know, kind of music through middle school. I got a private teacher who ended up, he was my middle school orchestra director and my high school director, uh, orchestra director, and my private bass instructor. Wow. So, I got to see, his name's Dwayne Botterbush. He's still playing professionally. And he was an amazing teacher and mentor for me. I, you, you can't realize it at the time, how influential they are on you. But his advice, uh, in particular with um, later in high school and going into college was just so, um, was just really influential. So yeah, between my parents and Dwayne, and, you know, then just my parents' friends and everything, I had all sorts of people to bounce ideas off of mm. and, you know, be like, what, sh- what, is th- what does this look like, uh, being a professional musician? Oh, I already go to my dad's big band gigs and I, like, you know, set up PA systems for him or move music stands was typically my gig. Yeah, yeah. And so I just kind of got to see what that lifestyle was like in real time growing up. I didn't. I didn't have to really guess. And I guess, strangely enough, it didn't really scare me away from it. It, If anything, it made me want it more. Um, So, you know, I did the usual. I auditioned at a handful of schools. I ended up going to West Virginia University. I studied with uh, Andy Cohn, who plays in the Pittsburgh Opera and Pittsburgh Ballet. And he was just an incredible teacher. But he was a great teacher for me. It was not a big studio, which, you know, I think I would have done fine in a big studio, but it it was a small studio and I really got along with people. Um, Still friends with a bunch of people from school as as many of us are. And, you know, when I was in college, I was playing like in a 10 piece horn band and we were doing like James Brown covers and Tower Power, Earth, Wind and Fire, Paul Simon, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of great stuff. And, so I really kept both of those 
you know, kind of the traditional classical training and then always having my foot in the pop world as well. And I guess I should also mention, I played in my dad's jazz big, uh, big band, his college ensemble, when I was in high school. So I got to do a couple European tours with them and we played at like Montreux and Vienne. And so I got all these amazing experiences through, through, my, um, through my parents. And I, it just kept me excited about all, all these different types of music. And then, you know, at the end of my undergraduate degree, which was in music education, you know, the, the only real thought that I had in my mind was, I feel like I just need a couple years to do nothing but practice. That's it. Um, music ed is a pretty intense major. You're just doing, you know, student teaching and all the pedagogy classes, learning to play a bunch of instruments at a like a fifth or sixth grade level. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that stuff is just, it's just very time consuming to do all of it. And I practice, my whole, you know, inner uh, kind of conversation was, it doesn't matter what major you can, you choose, you can always practice. It just has to do with discipline and, and creating time for yourself. So I thought even with music ed, um, I'll get that degree, but I'm also going to work my butt off as a performer as well. Sure. And, you know, of course, these things are, <laughs> if you're going to be a great teacher, it's, it's helpful to be a, a very, very strong performer as well. But after undergrad, I really just wanted to go somewhere and be able to just basically do nothing but practice for a couple of years. And I also wanted to go to a metro area. And I can't say there's a whole... <laughs> whole lot of, I'm going to go to Chicago for all these reasons, other than the teacher at DePaul, Rob Cassinger, who I researched Rob, I researched all the teachers a lot, but Rob's profile in particular really struck me because at that time he was playing in a band called Nyko, and Nyko's lead singer was the principal percussionist of the Chicago, or Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Ted Atkatz, hmm. and Ted's out in LA now. But when I saw that, I was just like, wow, this is really compelling. I'm, I'm going to listen to their music. I wonder what their band Nyko's like. And I listened to it and I thought, man, this is like really awesome pop. That's so cool that Rob's into this. So I'm digging into him more. I figure out that he's also a world-class jazz musician as well. I thought, this, this seems like a really good match on paper. So we just talked for a couple minutes after my audition and I felt a real just a real like kinship with him. And it was a little bit of a calculated risk, like every choice is for school, sure, sure. but it, it really ended up paying off. And he was absolutely the teacher that I, that I needed. And so while I was at DePaul, I was playing, uh, I did a, a season with civic orchestra and I started teaching privately while I was, uh, you know, in the middle of my master's degree to make a little cash. And then I also met the guys, uh, or at least the lead singer, uh, who would end up being, I've been in a band with him since 2008. And it's kind of a, you know, I don't know, alternative rock group. Um, and that was through another bass player at DePaul. And it started as one gig and then turned into this thing. And lo and behold, we still like enjoy playing with each other every time we get on stage. That's so cool. Yeah. So, so Chicago has been this amazing uh, place for me where I've been able to really flex a lot of different parts of my, 
you know, musical interests. It's just been really cool. And so I left Chicago. I, I should say I graduated from DePaul and like many students of like, okay, what do I do now? And at that point I'd actually kind of, um, I wasn't, um, I wasn't negative or dark about going down the audition circuit. I just kind of didn't want to do it. I wasn't, I just yeah. didn't find the drive to do it. Sure. Um, and that changed from when I entered school. Like that was kind of my goal. And then it, I, I put everything into it for a couple years and I realized I know the people who are doing this and are winning jobs and I don't have the drive for this like they do. And that was, uh, doesn't seem like much now, but I imagine it was kind of a tough pill to swallow a little bit. If yeah. that's if that's been your identity for a while, sure, sure. But I transitioned out of it pretty, you know, pretty well. I started getting to know people in the scene, and pretty quickly was uh, expanded my private teaching, and was you know got on. Uh, I won an audition in a regional orchestra, and then started getting on sub lists for some, um, you know, really nice freelance stuff. And so I did that for about. I'd say four, four, five years after school. And by that point, I'd also started subbing in the mu musical theater scene here in Chicago, which you know, is kind of the second biggest uh, theater scene uh, after Broadway in the States. And I was doing some subbing and I got asked to do a full run at this uh, theater called the Marriott Theater. It was a brand new show, which is very exciting because not everything's established. And um, I met like five people who I consider like still some of my best friends right now uh, in that band. And I just, I had the best time. I got called back the next year to do another run. And these runs are uh, typically at this theater, like eight to 10 weeks. And then starting in fall 2014, I just started playing every show up there. And that was, it's a five show season. And, you know, around, I think we're about 42 to 45 weeks a year. Wow. And eight shows a week. So I've been doing that until COVID for about five and a half years. And I was subbing on uh, Hamilton here in Chicago for the last two and a half years. Or, yeah. And, you know, I've done some uh, other Broadway and Chicago stuff. And that entire time, I've also been touring with my band. Um, and we've released full lengths, EPs, and all that stuff. So, so yeah. That's. Sorry, there's a lot about that. It's <laughs> interesting to me. I mean, it's the most interesting thing. This is what I'll comment on first. Is like, this is gonna sound absurd, but I didn't even know you played bass. <laughs> like, I just, I just know you as the thing you reached out to me about about the uh -huh. interview. You know, so it's so interesting. Like this concept of identity is really interesting to me because I'm sort of experiencing it myself now. Like having, you know, your your a lot of irons and different fires and stuff like that. It's it's interesting that somebody could know you for this thing that's not what you possibly have known yourself for. And like that, the first time somebody possibly reached out to me for that's not spit and not as a trumpet player, it was very surreal to me. And so that's the first thing that's interesting is just to like, and then the other thing that I would like you to comment or just to speak about is like, you just seem to be open to kind of what's coming your way um, in terms of whether it's, and you, this sort of this realness with yourself too, this sort of either authenticity or whatever words you want to put there. 
Uh, is that something you've always been? Has that sort of developed? Have you admired it in other people and sort of tried to emulate? Like, how did you come across this ability to speak to yourself so honestly and just seemingly appreciate the opportunities that come your way and then a career develop from that? Yeah, um, I certainly admire other people that um, I think that probably possess those qualities. Um, you know, when I was growing up, one of the fir first bass players I really got into was Christian McBride. And, you know, Christian McBride is, of course, just this, you know, unbelievable jazz bassist, but he's also so much more than just, you know, a jazz double bassist. He um, has insane detailed knowledge about, like, all of James Brown's history and his band's <laughs> history. And he he just um so so i guess yeah it's like he and you know he played bass for sting when sting asked him to play bass he he was always just playing all this stuff and then he's a duo record with or, or i think it's upcoming with edgar meyer and yeah i guess it just seems like whatever comes into his life it's uh sounds great mm. and but yeah i i um you know, I think maybe the central idea or, or what I always wanted to do, I've just always really liked playing music with other people. And I don't try to get more complicated than that. Sure. And there are some things, obviously, that have come my way that I've turned down and they haven't, it hasn't excited me. So I'm not just going to do it to, you know, stay busy, whatever, you know, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm always open to performing um, with other people who are interested in making, just making great music, what what whatever the setting too. Yeah, is there ever a time where you were possibly financially not super or not as secure, where you still turned something down because you weren't excited about it? You sort of held to that principle, even if it was like you were there was some worry about would I be able to not put food on the table, but you get what I mean. Oh, sure. No, no, uh, no. <laughs> if, if, I mean, if it's, you know, it's like kind of the old freelancer, you know, view of it. If it, it's either got to pay great or it's got to be something I really want to do. And if those intersect, then you're really living. But um, no, I, I don't. Well, I should say I, the job I won in that uh, regional symphony, which, you know, I forget how much work it was throughout the year, but I, you know, I eventually just left it because, you know, you kind of see what it is. And the ensemble was really good, but I was like, okay, I'm getting more and more teaching and I don't have to drive so far. And then that allows me to actually have more time to pursue other things because you know, only so many hours in a day, I don't want them to be spent on the road. And I actually forgot one thing. I, I, it's a really one of the main reasons I left my job. I taught at Illinois Wesleyan University for eight and a half years. And that was one of the reasons I ended up leaving. It was just, um, you just spend so much time in the car. And, you know, it's an old freelance story. But, um, but no, I, if, if I get called for a, a nice, nice gig, I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, a, I mean, the way you're speaking, it seems like you value your time. And it seems like you're also able to ask yourself that question. Like, is this how I want to spend my time versus I have no choice, which I feel a lot of people struggle with. It's just, I have all these opportunities and I have to do them all because being a musician is like doing all of it. And so I'm starting to understand how, what, like the value of doing less and doing more quality with that. 
But it seems like you have a pretty good relationship with at least being able to ask yourself those questions. So is this how it's always been? Is there some book you read that changed your life? Was it a conversation with somebody or just like, where, where did that kind of ability come from? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any single, any single moment or, or like text or something that I read. I mean, part of it's just, um, a little of it is just business. You know, I, if, if you're working hard and you know that you're, you know, putting the work in and doing quality work, you want to be, you you know, you want to be in situations where you feel like you're having positive reinforcement. And that can obviously come in different ways, like working with great students or, you know, playing a gig that pays a, a you know, a fair, a fair wage. But um, I think I've always just followed, just followed what like gets me excited. And it's not to me, I, I sometimes think, um, and I shouldn't say this, but sometimes when I um, talk to other freelancers, there's this, well, I got to do that one for the money. And, I, you know, most gigs that I've played, I've been able to find something positive about them. Yeah. And even if it's absurd, <laughs> you know, even if it's like I played this uh, this gig where I, I got called to play two minutes of music at this huge corporate event. And it was music that was specifically composed for that event. It was the silliest, most ridiculous <laughs> song. And we had to show up six hours before we were supposed to play because of all the load in for that gig. The paycheck was enormous, but, you know, everyone was sitting around there as kind of vibe of complaining and I'm like this is the most yeah. hilarious this is the most hilarious gig ever um but anyway yeah I just I mean I guess I'm sort of trying to paint a picture in sort of opposition of what I feel like our cultural cultural culture generally is which is to do more and more and more and more and the grind and idolizing like doing stuff and being busy and you've even sort of spoken against that a little bit. And it's just like such a refreshing perspective that like for you, it was just a seemingly from, if I'm hearing you right, an outpouring of just trying to follow what excites you and doing things that are fulfilling and meaningful and letting that be your guide rather than like, this pays me money or I feel guilty if I don't do this or something like that. Sure. I think too, the way I've tried to structure things is if if this can create stability for this, that's good. Like I, the idea of constantly spinning um, and not knowing where the next thing's coming from, you know, to a degree, obviously, that that can be, you know, very disorienting. And, you know, I got really fortunate to land this super steady gig at a theater. But once you have something like that, even if it's like for six months, you know, you could start to like project financially what things look like, and then you can build around that. And so like the scholarship roadmap, you know, as soon as I knew I wasn't going to be playing at the theater, the first thing that came to mind was, okay, I was already making a transition before COVID. I was leaving this solid teaching position because I just wanted something different. I wanted to do something else. I didn't want to travel, all those things. And I was already trying to brainstorm what the next thing would be. And 
it really got me thinking about what I enjoy about teaching the most. And one of the, my favorite parts about teaching is that process where you see a student start to think about, huh, this music thing, I really like this. What does that even mean? Um, and then, you know, the conversations start with them in the lesson. And I usually just like ask a single question and try to let them think about it for a week. And, you know, it's the benefit of teaching someone over the years, obviously. But um, then watching them go through all of that, and if they decide that they want to pursue a degree in music, then trying to really get themselves to, to think critically about what they want out of their education. I love that part of teaching. Yeah. And so when I kept thinking about that, I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could just do that at scale for more people. And then I just kept thinking about it. You know, these things take time. You don't just like, you know how it goes, man. You yeah, don't just yeah. like come up with an idea and then the next week it's formed. I mean, every week I have something, you know, a new new idea or a way that this can be tweaked or whatever. And um, and so that's like really where it, where it kind of started. Yeah, so there's a few things that are interesting about it. The one I want to stick on for a second is what you just said about this things, these things take time because I myself, I have a lot of energy and I have a lot of ideas and I have very much fallen prey to the trap that like me working harder or more hours will speed up the process. Basically, the work exists on a spectrum and there's just the work to do. Right. And if I work harder, the work gets done sooner. And if I don't work harder, it takes longer. But I'm learning the value of understanding exactly kind of what I was saying. Like maybe it's not like that. Maybe it's not about trying to do as much as I possibly can. And so if you have examples of how this idea has unfolded over time in ways that time was a beneficial aspect that like, you weren't thinking about something over here and over time you learned some stuff and it allowed you to um, sort of take the, the program in a certain direction. I'd be really curious what that would look like if you've if, ah, ah, if you have examples of that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Jesus. Talking all over myself here. Yeah. It's like, it's like the mouth gets ahead of the brain, <laughs> yeah. well, but welcome to my world too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, so when I actually started thinking about it, it was uh, so exactly what you said. I, you know, I have a million ideas too, but we all know the hard part, uh, the most difficult part is implementing ideas. So I was like, oh, this should be only a base thing. It should be like, it should combine not only kind of um, music school admissions or, you know, the music school preparation process, whatever you want to call it, but it should also have this whole like bass performance track with it too. And, you know, I have a colleague, I remember I was talking to him about it and he just kind of, he very gently said, man, that's a lot. (laughs) And, (laughs) And it was so, it was so genuine and not like not being judgmental. It was said in such a kind way that, I just thought, yeah, that is a lot. Yeah. No wonder my brain has been like, like all the time. So I thought to myself, okay, well, these questions or these categories 
they're they're largely universal to anybody who's thinking, you know, about uh, music school. So, you know, let's just drop the bass performance part. There's no shortage of incredible bass players mm-hmm. who are already, you know, doing these things. And, and while I love to teach bass, this, I think one of the benefits of a project, when you're thinking about a project, at least for me, is like, stop being such a generalist. And really, this is actually what you do. And so, so obviously, if someone asks you, well, what do you exactly do you do? And it takes you two minutes to explain it yeah. to them. That's yeah, pr- problematic. <laughs> I've struggled with that so much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so, yeah, exactly. Like you think so generally and like, because that helps you get a picture. But yeah, to have an elevator pitch or at least something very like, I do this and this and that leads to this is much harder than you would think it would be. That's oh, in my experience. Oh, it really is. And to me, that's all about creativity. Like songwriting, same deal. Like, I, you know, I typically uh, start my day with creativity for at least a couple hours and then, you know, get into the more mundane tasks. But, um, you know, that's when these ideas are really percolating for me. And then after I go through the mundane tasks, I always take a walk around dusk around my neighborhood in Chicago and... I almost always come back with a whole, whole other trove, and I write them down, and then I cook dinner. But um, it's uh, the refining. I think never stops in some ways, and that's a really good thing. But I think sometimes too, when people are too general about things, that's when you get stuck because it actually seems overwhelming. Because it is, you're like you're a single person. You actually can't do all that stuff really well. Um, there. And I think that's why a lot of projects don't make it, don't make it off the ground. But the, the, um, the narrowing is hard work because yeah. sometimes you have to lob stuff off that you, you like feel really passionately about. And that's, that's tough. How do you, how do you remain patient when it's your best option of a career path? You know what I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> It's not you easy. Have to. You have to remain patient. Like time is time, but it's easier if it's like a side project where you have some other source of income and you feel like I can give it the time it needs. So how do we be patient when it's this, like you're trying to win an audition, but you got to stay with the process or whatever the thing may be. Like, how do you do that? Or what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you have to maintain some semblance of, of steadiness, and this is for me, not everyone runs like this, but I I like to have at least some level of um, just some sort of steadiness. And like for some people that could mean, well, I'm just going to have another job, part-time job or something while I do this, or I'm going to teach X amount of lessons while I get this thing going. Because what you were saying about time, I think is so important. And I've had this discussion with people. It's like, if I put 12 hours a day into this program as opposed to six, I bet it would probably, the six would be just as effective as the 12, right, right. except the 12, I would feel more ragged and my head would be all over the place. And, but to, to, to be more focused, I think you actually have to allow yourself to have time away. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just like wake up every day and say like practice for six hours. It's never worked for me. 
I, I just, I have to have time throughout the day where, you know, frankly, I'm doing like nothing that requires any sort of thought. Like I had this thing when, when I'd be playing a gig in Chicago with my band at a club and I knew like a couple hundred people were going to be there. And, you know, there's always some anxieties with going on stage and everything. What am I going to do the afternoon before we go in for load in and sound check? I'm going to clean my bathroom. <laughs> because that is like the most mindless possible thing that I can yeah. do. And for some reason, it always like put me in a decent headspace before I'd go in. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I actually think that's such a cool way to say it. If, if it, you're going to work 12 hours or six hours, because it just leads to a whole another set of questions, which is like, well, do we believe that if we work 12 hours, we'll get there faster? Well, then like, what then? Like, I just don't think, I think we get into this headspace. I'd be curious if you've experienced this where like, there is a place that we're trying to get to. And then once we get there, it's fine. We don't have to like work as hard or we can relax or it's like, you know, the idea of retirement, but it's not really retirement. It's, and so it leads to a question of what justifies your work. Like what makes it so the work is worth it? What story are you telling yourself? For you in the scholarship, roadmap program, right? Like you're telling people this kind of work will lead you to a good fit with your um, instructor and your school and stuff like that. So that will justify the work that you're asking them to do. Maybe practicing whatever amount of hours will lead you to winning a job. You believe that that justifies the work, but I feel like it's not sustainable uh, because then you reach that place and then like what next? So I'm kind of curious what sustains you um, you were talking about playing with others. Maybe that is it, but is there any other thing that sort of sustains you in your efforts towards just moving forward slowly, but surely and consistently? Sure. I think, so I really attach to the idea that um, Seth Godin puts forward about being generous. And one thing, like when I play at the theater, I it's a theater in the round and we're kind of in this black box that's above one of the sections. So I can actually see everybody while we play, which is, you know, not typical for musical theater and it, watching the looks on the faces of patrons that come in and like, just have two and a half hours where they can just like forget whatever troubled them that day or, or, or something actually gives me a serious amount of joy to be able to share that with them. Even if I'm just playing five, one, five, one, the entire <laughs> show, and there's some dopey bass parts. It's still like, I still get pleasure out of that. And the, the thing with the scholarship roadmap is, and Ryan, I know you must know so many people like this who went to school, they left school, they didn't immediately win a job. And then it was like just darkness. Yeah. And I, one of the things I spoke to this, um, student musician the other night. She's a um, flute player. And she really, her questions were so fundamental about music school. And I, even when I have those conversations, I've had them many times, you're sometimes like, oh my gosh, they don't know anything about music school. And to be able to share with them you know, some of the truths of the entire system and being honest with them about just numbers. This is how many performance majors are graduated a year. This is how many jobs are available in, you know, Ixam orchestras. 
it's not to scare anybody. It's not to tell you not to do it. Um, but, you know, people in her position, she was just asking questions like, so why is the private teacher so important? Mm-hmm. And I would just say to her, well, are you studying privately now? And she said, yeah, I am. And I, you know, I said, well, tell me about that, uh, that relationship that you have with your teacher. And she spoke about it for five minutes. And she clearly is such an amazing match with her teacher. I said, now imagine having that for four years, but in higher education. That seems like a pretty important thing to get right, doesn't it? And she just kind of sat there. It was like, <laughs> she goes, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And I think sometimes some of the stuff that can help people, and I know this is for me, is when I'm talking to somebody and they like drop some knowledge on me. I've never thought about it like that. And it seems obvious, mm-hmm. but it clearly wasn't that obvious because I'd never, you know, I or whatever amount of people haven't thought about it. So to be able to share the basics and get someone thinking about their own experience and then watching them do that, like on screen now, is like, I, that's very exciting to me because yeah. ultimately they're taking ownership then, which is my ultimate goal is that these students can take ownership of their own like current reality and their future. And we all know that like none of us have a crystal ball with this stuff, but it can at least get them to be making more clear-headed decisions. And that, that to me is like a really potentially great outcome. Yeah, you, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, man. This is like <laughs> a big part of what I'm trying to do as well is to just help people develop more authority and uh, give people a semblance of control of what's happening in their practicing life specifically, but just in general, your own sort of growth and development. Um, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. I think it's so important. Um, can we talk? I, I want to dive into uh, some, maybe some of the, I, I don't know how best to describe this, but we could say key tenants or things that you find yourself having conversations about the most. Um, just like things that you feel are very important that you wish, you know, you want people to know about the work that you do, or maybe just getting some of this information into the hands of people who could use it. And then maybe just talking about, if, you know, some of the, I guess, testimonials, like stories of people being matched and what that looks like, just kind of some of the process of what you do. Sure. Yeah. So really what I work on is, is narrow. It's your musical profile. And that means, you know, your, your performance. I am not a substitute for a private instructor, of course, but part of the, the process that I take students through is assessing their performance level with their private instructor. And they can do that privately. I don't have to be involved in that, but I do want to hear them. Because if you have a student, say, who is having trouble getting through major scales and they say, I want to audition at Juilliard, Curtis, you know, and go, you know, go down all of uh, a very strong music programs, someone has to have this discussion. Say, yeah. well, this isn't... So there's, an, there's a performance uh, component of it. But then there are these other... Um, you know, parts of the profile, like interview techniques, how to interact with faculty. And one thing that I really enjoy doing is when a student first reaches out to a faculty member and sometimes they go, oh, you can do that. I go, yeah, they actually want to hear from you. They love to hear from students, but let's figure out a way to do this in a way that's like professional. So your first interaction with that teacher, they are going to take notice to that. Oh, this person's taking this seriously. Because we all know as teachers, those are the kind of students we want to work with. And so there's a bit, um, 
you know, the interview component or, you know, interfacing with uh, teachers and then also um, the music schools. But I'm never writing for them in lieu of them contacting. But again, this goes back to having that student taking ownership. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot to be learned in that process for them. And, you know, then we'll talk about some real basics like, hey, what interval is this? And we'll kind of get a a sense if, if they really you know, how are they going to be looking on that a theory test that they have to take before they go to school? And if they need a little uh, support in theory, happy, you know, happy to help them with that. But a lot of it too, a lot of kids come to me and they say, where should I apply? And then they typically, and I say, well, what schools have you thought about already? And then it's typically famous schools, just well-known schools, um, which, you know, have great programs for some people. But, you know, as we talk about, there's these like great programs only have so many slots. Mm-hmm. And depending on the school, they really, some schools really just aren't very generous with scholarships. And if the student falls into this um, kind of range where, so, where people fall into where they don't really qualify for need-based aid, and um, so they're going to have to be paying like 60 grand a year to go to school, 40 grand a year to go to school. I, I stand against that. If that's what you want to do and you have millions of bucks or whatever to, to spend on that, cool. But my goal is to try to help to improve the student's musical profile so they qualify for merit-based awards. And the challenge with that sometimes is sometimes there are um, – say there's a $20,000 scholarship that is directly, they say, this is all based on your audition. Other schools, like some liberal arts schools, have situations where they may only have, like I interviewed a guy from Marietta College. He's a recruiter and clarinet professor there. He said our biggest reward for musicians is 3,500 bucks. Yeah. And that school's like 65 grand or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, how does that work? And, you know, of course, he, he explained, and as we know with liberal arts schools, sometimes the award itself for the audition isn't very big, but what that does for your overall student profile that that college is looking at makes it infinitely more attractive. And then the total package offered is significantly higher because they yeah. know they'll be in the music program. And some parents, some parents and students just aren't aware of that. And that's one of the ideas that I present to them. But the ultimate goal is to try to get them into a program that they love and that doesn't like put them in an insane amount of debt because we know what that does to people. Yeah. And it's so. like a, such a reality now. I mean, when I went to school, it was expensive and that was 10 years ago. <laughs> yes. You know, so <laughs> I'm sure it's even worse now. And, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that happens because... I would be curious, you know, that I know you know about it, the episode that came out with with, uh, Jason and Jason just like yesterday or something. Yep. About do we need music school? And it's an interesting thing because I think if we go through life with the idea that we have to have this to be able to perform, they can do whatever they want with money, you know? And so having zero alternatives puts us in a disadvantage as people who would like an education. So it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting thing you're trying to do, which is trying to use, trying to basically like mitigate the system we have 
and like help people out to the best of your ability. <laughs> yeah, at, yeah, that that conversation yesterday I thought was so like, oh my gosh, my my brain was just like going after that. And I thought it was such a so many good points in that. And you know, I, I always say if parents ask me like the, you know, the question, well, what the heck do you do with a music degree? Mm-hmm. I'm always like, I don't, I don't have the answer for you. All I can say is, is that I could throw about 40 other degrees in that same basket. What do you do with, you know, this degree? What do you do with that degree? If your goal is to play in a professional ensemble that pays a full-time salary, you're right. (laughs) The chances of doing that are incredibly low. I will never lie to anybody about that. It's, um, but there are so many people, for instance, where my dad taught at Gettysburg College who, you know, they got a music degree and then just went into something else. And it wasn't because they, they fell out of love with music or anything. They just, at that point in their life, they went in with music and went out and said, well, I'm just going to do something else. And they're wildly successful in these yeah. other fields. So, so, is, so to, yeah. Sorry. No, no, yeah. you finish your thought because I'm about to go off on something. Yeah. No, I, I, so to me, in some ways, it's like these kids who go into school. Like my mom is a student who's currently, she teaches French horn, who's currently in school. She's not majoring in music. She's majoring in bio. They gave her a full ride. And now she is need-based aid for sure. But then, because she has like three or four um, siblings, but she also got academic scholarship, but then the school threw her a bunch of money because she's a kicking French horn player. And if she didn't know that that was even possible at that school, right? like that could have cost her X amount a year. So yeah, I think this is the conversation, like whether music school is necessary or not, in my opinion, it doesn't miss the mark. It's a necessary conversation. But I feel like the real conversation we should be having is what purpose does music serve in our life? Like what purpose does playing an instrument serve in our life? And for so many of us, uh, like myself included for a very long time, playing an instrument served as a way for me to have like a lot, like a life, like music, playing an instrument was my life, not something that enriched my life and happened to be a career, but was my life. And you're living your life in worship of this thing, this metal tube for the rest of your life, you know? And you're, that's what you just said about, um, like they go through, they start in music and they go through and they do something else. It's like, I would love for you to expand upon what your thoughts are on this. I'm going to finish my thought. Um, but not only is this something that enriches their life, but probably music school and the things they learned about problem solving, b- discipline, working with others probably serves them incredibly well. And so it's not like a waste, whether or not it's a music degree is not a waste in any possible way. If we understand what we're doing and what we're building and what it's serving for building us as people, I would love for you to kind of see what, well, I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you hit so many nails on the head there. I, I, You know, I think there are so many, there's so many different ways to go through college. And I know so many people that have come out with X degree and then do something else. My sister has a degree in creative writing and film studies and is now a recruiter um, for um, what are you going to have to edit this? It was Aerotech. What's the what's the huge uh, IT company? Um, Enron. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Enron. Um, 
Oh my God. It doesn't matter. Google? I don't know. No. Oh man. Um, She's crushing it though. Mm -hmm. You know, she's doing, she's doing really well. And the skills like her skills that she learned in college on how to be able to collaborate in um, screenwriting and, you know, she worked uh, in theater when she was in school as well. So absolutely suited her in her job now. She's an excellent communicator. She reads people very well. You know, there, there are all of these, um, you know, I guess the term now everyone uses is soft skills. And, you know, beyond that, from a societal standpoint, like one of the things that has always gotten me the most excited, I had a student, um, I think she went to McAllister. She's a good bass player. But I remember talking to her, I said, Allie, do you think uh, you're going to, you know, pursue music? She goes, no. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I said, <laughs> do you, I, I said, do you want to keep playing bass in, in college? She goes, oh, absolutely. And I was like, oh, cool. You should make sure you audition so you get, so you get some money for that if it's available. She was like, oh. And so we put a little audition together for her and um, she ended up playing there. But she's now, uh, I think, going into med school, you know, all these years later after undergrad. But here's the thing. Because that she came up in the fine arts and kept playing bass in college, if this is somebody who ends up being a doctor who then supports arts right. in our society in the future, there's a real benefit to that too. But, um, you know, all, all of the soft skills that you mentioned are, uh, so many musicians have those. And, the, you know, so like every musician I know is more than them just playing their instrument. Totally. You know? So why do so many of us feel that's the only thing that matters? Because we get praised for that. And musicians, like, I joke about this with the drummer in my band. Devin is just this amazing um, drummer. He plays uh, gospel. Like, I met, he actually played Nyko, that band. He played in the band with my teacher in, in grad school. So we met through that. But Devin always says, man, Trev, you know, us musicians need constant stroking after every show. If someone doesn't come up and go, man, great show, man. Great performance. You sounded great. You're like, did I even play well tonight? Yeah. And I think there's a, there's maybe a praise thing. And I see it in musical theater, of course, all the time. Like people coming out in the hallway and, you know, actors and musicians. And, oh, my God, it was amazing. What other job has that? <laughs> you know, athletes? But, like, you don't walk out of, like, uh, you know, I always just go to this. But, like, an insurance gig where it's like, you really, you did a great job today on those forums. Um it that doesn't happen. So maybe maybe that's part of it. I haven't, I haven't done a deep psychological dive on this. I don't know. I just, I feel like we don't, we're so concerned, in my opinion, we're so concerned with getting better. We're not like asking ourselves like what's happening in the process of getting better. And there's a book that talks about this, Chop Wood, Carry Water. It's like, we should be so much more concerned with who we're becoming in the process of getting better than actually whether or not we are getting better. In my, and I think, that, I think that says it so well. Like, who are we becoming? Like, what skills are we developing that could be applied anywhere in life? Because yes, it would be great. It would be great to have a career <laughs> in music. But like, it is, if you don't do that, it doesn't mean you've failed and you can take those skills elsewhere and it's just like you could there's countless examples of people who are successful doing that and yet we just like 
get into our thing. This is the thing I have to do. I can only play an instrument because that's what people say. You're good job. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I, the stuff that I am doing right now in my life, I could never have imagined ten years ago that I would have, like, that I would even know how to read a line of code, that I would know how to use a DAW and edit. And like, I do, you know, remixes from time to time, particularly one of my favorite artists, Kimbra. But like, I would have never thought that I would be doing a lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now. I definitely didn't think I was going to be playing a musical theater. Right. That that was just one of those things. I'm like, well, I guess I have some experience with this. I should probably explore this to see what happens. And then when I started doing it more, I thought to myself, I guess your skill set is pretty well suited for this. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's just, I think it's not, um, a producer I worked with, uh, Jay Hall, he's in um, Nashville. He always would say, you just got to stop being so precious about your ideas. Mm. You just got to like be willing to be flexible with your ideas, especially when you're collaborating and if you have it in your head one way and it doesn't come out that exact way, that's okay. Like improvise. Yeah. Do do something different. Um, you know, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I, yeah. It's just to me, it's like the kind of the most important conversation to have, right? It's like we can talk about how to be sex, successful and we can talk about how to win auditions and we can talk about how to get into schools. But it's just like if we don't view ourselves as people who like are getting better and growing and the growth mindset type thing. It's just, we will always like, no matter how hard we work, we will always get to a point where we will reach it and say, this is as good as I'm going to get. This is it. This is the, this is the peak. So you have these people who played high football in high school and they're like, those are the glory days. That was as good as it was ever going to get. Right. And to feel that way has got to be like, well, what else is there? But to feel like, Proving to ourselves that we can, through the use of our musical practice, we can break through barriers that we didn't know were possible in music should show us we could literally do it anywhere. That's a, that's incredibly well stated. I almost have nothing to add to that other than, <laughs> than um, I have never, the only thing that I've ever looked back on, I think in my life and have been like, that was really awesome was uh, just acknowledgement of, uh, in particular, one of my friends in high school, who I'm still very close with. We just, you know, he lives in New York. I live in Chicago. But I look back on it. Uh, it was a couple years in high school and then into college where, you know, we had we just worked jobs during the summer. In between college, I worked on facilities at a college and, you know, did all sorts of horrible gigs. And But every night, we would just come home and grill and listen to music, drink some beers, and I think in that moment, I recognized every single night how awesome it was to be able to do that with my best friend. And that's like literally the only thing I look back on saying like, man, that was a, that was a pretty cool time in my life. But I am, man, I am constantly looking forward to what's coming next because, um, you know, a lot of my friends that I hang out with that um, when we talk about music, they're always like, dude, you were always texting me with something new that came out. I just listened to the same stuff I've been listening to the last 10 years. I'm like, oh, I'll never be like that. Um, it's always more exciting to look to look at what's coming, you know, coming down yeah. the pike. So if there are people listening right now in this moment and they're thinking to themselves, that sounds really nice, but that's not me, right? 
there's nothing new, nothing exciting. COVID 19's got me down, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, do you have any encouragement for people um, that you could, you know, something to get started or just in general to sort of try to explore um, what you were just talking about? Yeah, I think a lot of times that can be really overwhelming. It's like trying to build a new habit can be really difficult. So I had this saying um, with a former girlfriend where if there was a day where there was like low levels of motivation, I would always just say, let's just do one thing. One thing that appears to be reasonably, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, productive. But I, I am a true believer that very small tweaks to what you're doing um, over and over with consistency can lead to lifestyle changes that can ultimately make you um, more satisfied with your day to day. And I, I, I try, I try to do that and fail and succeed from time to time. Well, it's interesting. It goes back to earlier when we were discussing doing it all at once, right? Like habit changes don't happen all at once. You can't force them. Like we need time to figure out this is the habit I would like to change, but what does that actually look like in my life? And so that would speak to that as well, I think. Yeah. I have another thing we could probably go into here. Um, This is the... Sort of the third act, I suppose, of the interview. I'm kind of curious what, like, if there's anything in your life that, whether it's adversity in your career, adversity in your personal life, just things you've like struggled with that have taught you lessons that you feel like you wouldn't have learned otherwise and in such way are possibly grateful for some of that struggle or adversity. Uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of that uh, w- with me and my audience. Sure. I think one of the lessons that I've learned, um, and this is, you know, if you have a a partner is consistent, there needs to be constant tending and I just consistency. And when you have opposite schedules, if you're a performer like I am and you hold late hours and you have someone who has an opposite schedule to that, it's extremely difficult, um, to, keep things together. And the way that I work, which is kind of my brain's always on (laughs) in a lot of ways, you have to break from that and create space to not do that and to just be present. And that's something that I still struggle with, but have, um, have really tried to have really tried to change. And it's, it's challenging. Um, and then also, like, you know, it's just in the context of personal relation relationships, like being in a band with three other guys, it's really easy when you're with somebody, or in this case, a group of people for a while, to snipe at them and, you know, be passive aggressive and, you know, all, all these things that we try not to do. And... being able to maintain something with other people, like whether it's your partner, in this case, three guys in the band, and you see them also trying, and you're able to like kind of coalesce all that energy into something that's bigger than yourself is one of like the most satisfying things in the world. And I um, just consider myself to be 
you know, in the world of pop music and bands, it's like if a band's together more than three years, it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, we've been together for like 12 years and we still like each other. We can still make each other laugh. And so again, it just goes back to that theme of, of being aware and tending to those personal relationships to keep them, to keep them strong. And then also knowing that they, uh, I think that they, they can change too. And what was true in 2008 might not be true in, in a 2020. Uh, if you've, if you don't feel comfortable with this, that's fine. But do you have any examples of stories of maybe where you got it wrong and that sort of shot you into, I'd like to do it right, you know, or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, God, it's probably endless. Um, <laughs> so I, I can be pretty impatient um, from time to time about um, particular things like, if I get really irritated about something, I just actually need to have an explosion. And about a minute later, I'm cool. And I'm not like putting holes in the wall here, mm -hmm. but I, I can feel myself getting pretty, uh, like pretty upset and irritated about something. And I've realized that what that looks like to somebody else can actually be kind of uh, intimidating and uh, even scary. And so just kind of like chilling out a little bit on that and not being so, uh, not being that guy in the practice room, if something goes wrong, <laughs> getting really upset, just <laughs> kind of relaxing. But, you know, I remember one time in particular that, um, I, you know, we had some friends staying with us and it had just kind of gotten to the, it's like, it'd really be nice to have the apartment back to ourselves at this point. And <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's just yeah. like, <laughs> Not naming names because we're all doing the best we can, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, you know, I was just acting like a jerk all day, just being short and, you know, there's, there's no one thing. But um, the woman who I was dating at the time, uh, she did not deserve that, that attitude. My gosh, I, like no one deserves that. And I saw how upset she was. And uh, it just like, it it just felt terrible. Yeah. And so that was one of those things where you just like, apologize, never act like that again. Sure, stop, sure. stop being 15 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting to me. I mean, the reason I asked this particular kind of question is because like, yeah, I could point to a few things in particular, probably a lot, but a few things in particular in my life that, like I learned things that I only learned if I would, by doing that thing, I wish I wouldn't have done. And so that's kind of why I asked that question because it's like interesting to me because like that exists in all of our lives. Like we have these embarrassing moments, but then we like learn something that's pretty, that makes it's like sort of true. I would not consider you, of course, I haven't seen you in every example, but I would consider you to be a very calm, you know, chill person, you know? So it's like possibly moments like that in your life help to drive some of that personal growth and development and asking like, especially if you're a person like you who's honest with yourself and like willing to say, you know what? Like I have some part in that. <sighs> it's interesting what kind of growth can come from that and sort of actual change in our life to come from, you know, moments of basically embarrassment or shame from ourselves. I was just, it's kind of why I ask a question like that. No, absolutely. And you know, gosh, in every 
you know, every part of my life, it's, you know, it's like when you record yourself playing something or you play over a set of changes that you thought you knew, and then you just totally, you know, totally ate it on them. And you're like, oh my gosh, can I even play my instrument? Am I even a musician? Um, sound, seems like I really need to actually learn that song better b- mm. before the next time. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I mean, and en- endless examples of that. Sure, sure. I'm constantly trying to get better. Yeah, and I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to paint a picture of anything bad here. It's just, it's to me, it's it makes for a really interesting conversation to see, like, if people are willing to be vulnerable, kind of like, you know, what makes things real to them, you know, and like what sort of defines who we are, what things in our life, because if we are the sum of our experiences, what kind of experiences um, make certain things true for one person, not true for another person. It's a very interesting conversation for me. So I appreciate you being willing to sort of go there and just explore that, you know? Sure. Um, sort of close out the interview, I suppose. I'd just be curious if you have any, um, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about this. So if there's nothing else, it's okay. But um, just sort of advice, thoughts, things that you find to be really important, encouragements you give people on a regular basis that you feel like are really helpful, things that help you, anything like that, just sort of to like leave this um, interview with sort of like, a, yeah, just like encouragement, really. Sure. When I, when I interact with students, and I've been doing uh, workshops for high schools the last, uh, last couple months, I can see it on some of their faces sometimes how hard this is for them. Um, you know, if they're learning remotely, not being able to see their friends and, you know, especially kids are like thinking about college, you know, I just can't imagine what it feels like. And I tell them that. And I just keep coming back to the phrase, be kind to yourself. This is, this is, it's hard anyway. If without all the stuff that's going on right now, the constant churn of information and and trying to figure out your future and just going back to that idea, let's just do one thing today. Mm -hmm. Let's do one thing in this workshop. And, you know, typically in those workshops, we'll, we'll, you know, say something like, what's the one thing you're going to do tomorrow to move this forward for you? And then we'll go down the line if it's only like a handful of them. And, you know, usually you'll get some like cool response. So I'm going to research this teacher that I've been thinking about, but I didn't really think that I should research them. Yeah. And um, you like really leave with that. You actually can control. Well, these are the things in your future that you can control. The things that you can't, forget it. Yeah, I would totally agree. I find it to be easier to let the things that you can't control go when you have a list of things you can control that are occupying your time. Absolutely. So, dude, this is great. Yeah, man, this was so fun. I'm so glad that we got the chance to do this. And um, I'm sure there's a number of ways that people can get in touch with you for various um, things. I'd just be curious if you wanted to sort of leave us uh, some contact info for you. Sure. Um, One of the first places I recommend is just the scholarshiproadmap.com. I have a bunch of free content on there. I have free guides um, for that just get you thinking about your future, even if you're on the fence about music. Um, I have a podcast. I have, you know, our interview will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, But I have a podcast with some musicians who are out there like doing it, 
and I get them to talk about the, the hard discussions like, what the heck did you do when you left school? So that's all at thescholarshiproadmap.com. And then I'm on Facebook and Instagram at The Scholarship Roadmap. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's about it. But you can also, if you want to talk about anything that's come up today or dig into um, you know, college music admissions or just talk about music careers, I am open, free call. And you can find that contact info on the website. Yeah, so I mean, I always try to recommend people reach out and if they like the episode or something like that. But in this particular instance, too, I think if you know people who are on the fence about music school or, you know, if you're a band director and you have music students, like high school music students or something like that, this might be a great resource to share with them as well um, and to sort of turn them on to who Trevor is, what he's about, and um, trying to, um, you know, sort of make this resource more widely known because I think it's a very cool thing. And so I'm Happy to do my best to support you in this endeavor, man. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do so on thatsnotspit.com and then That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, If you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that because it would be cool. Also, please share this on social media so other people can find the episode. Um, Thank you again so much, Trevor, for being on the podcast. This is awesome. It's great to be here, Ryan. Yeah, and Brandon Yoakum, thank you so much for your work mastering this episode. And then finally, I would like to thank you, the listener, for listening to the podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.